I'll be reading today from Luke 4, verses 21 through 24. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, well, if you brought a Bible, open to Luke chapter 4, where we're going to be this morning. And feel free to pull the sermon outline out as well from your bulletin to help you follow along. Um, we are going through a series this year, as Travis mentioned at the start of the service, where we're looking at the life of Jesus. And today we get to the part in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus' ministry becomes public and he experiences the variety of human responses to him. And today we're going to talk specifically about the rejection that Jesus experienced from the people in his hometown. This topic of rejection has a lot of emotional resonance for a lot of us because a lot of us spend a lot of our life trying to avoid rejection. What would you do to avoid rejection? Now, it takes on different forms at different stages of our life. You know, when we're young, maybe it's about fearing rejection from our parents or our siblings. As we get older, we, do a, we go to great lengths to avoid rejection from our peers. Think about when you were a teenager, all the ways that you tried to blend in just so you wouldn't be rejected from the people whose opinions were important to you. And now think about the fact that they were 15-year-olds that were so, their opinions were so important to you. As we get older, maybe it's romantic things that we're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of being rejected from a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse. We're afraid of being rejected in our industries or in our careers or by our bosses. Maybe as we get older, we're afraid of being rejected by our kids or later by our grandkids. And older still, maybe afraid of being rejected by memories or by what people might forget about us. We put a lot of effort as people into thinking that we can avoid rejection. And maybe if we had a fantasy, sometimes we'd think, you know, if I had the authority and power, I could avoid rejection altogether. And yet we see in Jesus' life that the one with the most power, with the most authority, is described in Isaiah 53 as being despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus would spend his life and end his life experiencing rejection, hung on the cross to die, his offer of a kingdom vetoed. To understand Jesus, you need to understand his willingness and capacity to be rejected. In fact, Jesus didn't just experience rejection once at the end of his life, some sort of cosmic theological necessity. He experienced rejection throughout his life by people that he had made from before the creation of the world. In Mark 8, he says that the rejection that he is going to experience on the cross is a necessity of his mission and of his life's purpose. As Travis mentioned earlier, we might think we would never be the ones who would reject Jesus. The idea of pushing away the Son of God would seem odd to us. Maybe a case of misunderstanding or a lack of information. But we see in today's passage that rejecting Jesus comes easy to the human soul. Because a lot of things that we believe about ourselves and about the world around us put us at odds with Jesus himself. 
Jesus experiences rejection from the very beginning of his public ministry from a village that he had grown up at and spent his life at. And so today we're going to look at that passage. What happens when Jesus is rejected? In this account, we're going to see how we might respond as well. What does Jesus offer the people of Nazareth? And what does he offer us today? And then we're going to look at a warning. A warning of how tempting it is to push Jesus away. And then what's the result of that at the end? Well, um, last week, just to, to orient yourself, if you, if you haven't been here or maybe this is your first week here, um, last week we talked about the temptations Jesus experienced. How he went out in the wilderness by himself and was tempted by the devil and experienced the full weight of human experience of temptation, yet without sin. Now he comes back to civilization in Luke 4 and begins proclaiming the kingdom of God. And in Luke 4, 14, it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a, a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, and this is an important phrase, being glorified by all. We're going to look at the rejection Jesus experiences in a minute, but at first, the response is universally positive, universal adulation and glory. People respond with celebration, but then Jesus goes home. And in verse 16, he comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. I, I just can't help myself. I think it's fascinating that it says, as was his custom, he went to the Sabbath every Saturday. Can you imagine anyone who uh, didn't need to go to church more than Jesus? <laughs> anyone who had nothing to confess, nothing to learn, <laughs> uh, and yet still he goes. It's a comfort to me uh, as well, of the value of worship for all of us. Well, in verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. He enrolls the scroll, scroll, and this is what he reads in verse 18 from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has, appointed, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The reason I'm punctuating the word me there is to show how provocative what Jesus is saying really is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. He's made me the Messiah you have been longing for and waiting for, Jesus says. He has sent me to proclaim liberty. I am the one with the authority to set at freedom the captives. Everything you hoped for from Moses and David comes to fruition in me. Jesus announces that he has come to bring the freedom and redemption that all of us need and long for. When Jesus wants to describe what he's all about, what his mission is, he describes himself as the one who brings liberty and freedom to those under bondage and oppression. He says that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, who has come to release the people from their burdens. And he would do that, wouldn't he? I mean, think about Jesus' life as you know it from the Gospels. He would go and he would heal the blind, literally. He would release those who are under the oppression of demonic uh, activity and demonic, demonic invasion. He would cleanse the leopard. He would miraculously feed the hungry. He would cause people who had been dead to come back to life. If ever there was a one who came good on his promise, it was Jesus. And then there's this wonderful line in verse 19, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to the Old Testament idea of the year of Jubilee, the once every 50 years where Israel was to say, this is the year of God's favor, and all debts are forgiven. And Jesus says, that happened economically. I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor spiritually. I'm going to release the people from their debts, not just their small financial debts, but much more importantly, their spiritual debts to God. I'm going to be the one who brings liberty and jubilee to everyone. 
Jesus makes sure that his villagers don't miss his point here. He says in verse 20, when he, I'm sorry, and in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendants, and sat down. They would customarily stand for the reading of scripture, as we do today, and then sit down for the time of preaching. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, and in verse 21, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, in an act of poetry, says everything that you hoped for and longed for in this has been completed, even as this ministry has only begun. You've been waiting your whole life for the Messiah to come, and I'm here, and I'm bringing you freedom and redemption. The Spirit would be on him in a way that no one has ever come be- no one has ever experienced before. The Spirit would enable Jesus to speak into people's lives things that only they knew in their hearts and in their thoughts. It would give him the authority over nature to still the wind and the waves that would obey him. And Jesus says, you have been waiting your whole life for this, and here I am. Now, what does it mean that Jesus brought liberty? Well, Jesus brought it literally in his life, right, in those examples I mentioned, but he also brought it figuratively for all of us in salvation from the oppression of sin and death. And as Christians, we're called to work for liberty and freedom for the oppressed even today. Christians, when we're at our best, while we can't literally do the things Jesus did, we can't miraculously cause the blind to see again, we can work for liberty and freedom through normal means, whether it's Harriet Tubman in the Underground Railroad in the 19th century Martin Luther King in the 20th century, working for freedom of the oppressed in the South and around the country, or Christians working today to end human trafficking. We follow Jesus well when we work for liberty for the oppressed in our world. But this is most fully expressed in our need for freedom from the bondage of sin and death. That's why we celebrate baptism in such a profound and meaningful way, because it represents outwardly something that happens inwardly in a life of Christ that when we confess that Jesus is our Lord, that he has taken our sins on his back on the cross, that we are freed from the bondage of sin and death in our lives. Now, let me just stop here, because I, I, I imagine, in a room this size, that some of you would object to this and say, like, I don't know, Bob, religion doesn't really bring freedom, does it? Like, I look at history, and it seems like religion brings oppression. I look at my reading of history, and I think that when religious people come into authority, there becomes less freedom, not more freedom. I think I watched a movie about that one time, and I'm pretty sure that's true, right? What do you think? Does religion actually bring freedom from oppression, or does it bring more oppression? It was Marx right, that religion is just an opiate for the masses to oppress them and hold them down. Well, I suppose it depends on what kind of religion we're talking about. After all, Jesus himself, when he was asked about this in Luke 11, says, woe to the lawyers, woe to the Pharisees and the experts in the law. And this is the, the quote from Luke eleven forty six: You load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. I think religion, when it's in human hands, can tend to oppress people. It can tend to rank people and put some people above each other and use the performance of religious tasks and religious rituals as a way to put heavy burdens on the backs of others. But this is where we need to make a distinction between what Jesus is announcing and what human religion tends to be. Because for Jesus, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He comes not to create an oppressive uh, weight on our shoulders, but to lift from our shoulders the weight of sin and death. He has come to live the life that we were called to live and refused to and die the death that we deserved 
and in so doing, set us free. In this sense, Jesus is vastly different from the religion that we've seen throughout history and then often even in our own day. And the people hear this and respond well initially. The people in Nazareth in verse 22 are impressed and amazed. This is what it says in verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? See, I want to stop here for a minute because this verse we can easily gloss over. But it's important that the initial response of the people of Nazareth is excitement, is uh, being impressed in his adulation. In a few minutes, they're going to reject Jesus based on some other things he'll say. But at this point, based on everything he said so far, they're really excited. And what's not to be excited about? The Messiah might be from their tiny village. Their village of probably no more than 400 people is finally going to be put on the map. Nazareth, which literally in Aramaic meant the little offshoot, the little offshoot of the, of the branch of David, is finally going to be the place that grows into a full tree to show the world that they are important, that they truly matter. Their cousin, their uh, one-time playmate and friend has become the Messiah, and they're going to ride his coattails all the way to authority and power. Sometimes we read this line, is this not Joseph's son? I think that they're incredulous at him. But in this culture, at this time, and in this context, that would have been a sign of uh, congratulations to the family and excitement about what it means that this lineage, this family with the lineage from the tribe of David would become the Messiah. Sometimes this passage is read as an example that even Jesus' genius gets taken for granted by his hometown. And that's sort of used as a comfort for all of us, that when people close to us don't recognize how special we are, we say, well, even Jesus was ignored by Nazareth. But, you know, that might be true, but, but I don't think that's Luke's point. I think Luke's point is that Nazareth, like many of us, is on board with Jesus when they can see what's in it for them. But when the challenges come, especially the challenge of who Jesus is and who he's come to help and who he's come to bless, we can quickly turn from being excited and supportive to wrathful and rejecting towards him. And that's what happens in verse 23. Jesus provokes them and he says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. And this isn't from the biblical book of Proverbs. This is probably a more colloquialism from his generation. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What's Jesus saying? What what does he think that the people of Nazareth are expecting of him? He's saying, you think that because I'm from your hometown, I'm going to treat you as front of the class. You're expecting because we're part of a kin group, because we grew up together, that you are going to get special treatment, right? This line, physician, heal yourself, is kind of like our modern idiom of the tailor whose kids have no clothes. Why would you not take care of yourself first and people who are close to you first? Well, you've heard we did at Capernaum, right? Which means heal people, uh, bring uh, the kingdom of God in a very powerful and magnificent way. Do here, right? Why aren't you looking out for your hometown? Why are you giving the best to people out there and not people in here? This starts to provoke the outrage and the anger of the people of Nazareth. And the reason it's important in your life and in my life is because it shows us something that's tempting about the human soul. Everyone I know comes to Christ for some sort of selfish reason. Maybe there are some really altruistic people in here who came to Christ for the glory of God and to serve the world. But most of us come to Christ because of, I don't know, we want to go to heaven or we want to avoid hell or we want to make our mom happy or we want to make our wife happy 
or we want to make our kids happy, or we want to make our friends happy, right? Or maybe we just want to have a, a spiritual experience or a spiritual high, or we want to resolve some intellectual doubt, or we want help in our recovery from alcoholism or whatever. You, you can tell me other reasons that might have been part of your story later at the door. And, and none of that's bad, right? No, no, I, I'm not castigating that. That's, that's nothing wrong with that. But there's a challenge, there's a, a bend in the walk with Christ that comes when we realize that ultimately the Christian life is not about us, but about us following Jesus to serve the world. And for the people of Nazareth, that's a bend that throws them off the road altogether. He compares himself to Elijah and Elisha here to drive the point home. He says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he tells the story of two of the most important Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who took the best parts of being prophets and didn't use them to benefit the people closest to them, but the people furthest away from them. First tells the story of Elijah, who in a time of famine didn't bring this miraculous gift of food and plenty to people in Israel, but went out all the way to Sidon and found a woman there, a widow there, and blessed her instead. And then he tells the story of Elisha, who, in, uh, who blesses not an Israelite army captain, but a, a Syrian army captain named Naaman, someone who had used his military might against Israel and blessed him instead. These stories cut to the core of Nazareth's response. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you think I came for your benefit? You think I came because you deserve it? No, just like Elijah and Elisha, I have come to save the wrong people, or at least who we think might be the wrong people. If our plan is to follow Jesus because he's going to reward us and commend us and give us what we think we want, we're going to be confronted with the reality that Jesus comes not to just save people like us, but people that we think he would never or should never save. This is really at the heart of Jesus' message of the kingdom. He has not come to rank us, but to save us. And the only people who can be saved are the people who admit that they are broken and need saving in the first place. For a synagogue full of religious Jewish people, this was a hard message to hear. And for a church full of religious Christian people, this can be a hard message to hear. Because often we think that we deserve something from God, that we have done something to earn the place that we're in. In fact, often whenever we're doing well at something, it's hard to acknowledge that it's not something that's available to everyone outside. Anyone here a big football fan? Yeah, there's no game, there's no meaningful game today, which is why we're all here at church. Um, I'm really grateful this Super Bowl is in the late afternoon next week. Um, I'm a big football fan, and I, I would have loved to play football beyond high school, uh, but there was this problem that I'm not very athletic. That, that was the major problem <laughs> in the way. And so every time I watch uh, like a post-game interview and I see a 25-year-old amazing athlete get up and say, you know, this is just proof that anyone who really sets their mind to it could be a pro football player. And I just think, well, no, it's not. Right? It's proof that like a 22-year-old, a 28-year-old who could run a 4-2-40 and a 40-inch vertical leap could have a chance to play in the NFL, but that, that, that doesn't prove that it's accessible to everyone. The, on a much more important level, the same is true in terms of following Jesus. It's tempting sometimes to think, we're doing well, right? Like, we're, we're, we're following Jesus, and we've earned this on our own accord. We've earned our way here. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 this is, this is not, I've not come for the people who think that they've earned their way here. I've come for the people far away who, who know that the only way that they're going to come is by me going and saving them. 
The selfish nationalism of the people of Nazareth clouded their view and clouded their judgment, and they reject Jesus as a result of it. Now, I, I don't want to get across that, that this is the only reason people reject Jesus, either in his generation or today. We'll see throughout the Gospels other reasons that people push back against Jesus, and maybe in your story, if you're still struggling with, with this, whether you want to be a Christian or whether you think God's real or whatever, you might have some other objections too. So I, I don't mean to get across this is the only reason. But for Nazareth, this is their reason, that they're unwilling to see Jesus rewarding people far away from him. And they provoke anger and wrath in the people of Nazareth. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. Jesus' message has exposed their hearts. Their longing for the Messiah ultimately wasn't about righteousness or about faith, but about self-interest. And if Jesus' coming doesn't benefit them, then what's the point? So they push him away, right? Literally, in this case, they, rather than repent like they had with John the Baptist, they respond with self-protection and anger. And they rise up in verse 29 and drive him out of town. And they brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Jesus was rejected by the people who knew him the best and should have followed him the quickest because like us today, their sinful hearts had been exposed and they didn't like it and they push him out. And yet in verse 30, it says, passing through their midst, he went away. What a sad verse. The rejection of the people from Nazareth reflects our own temptation to reject Jesus. And the reaction of the Nazareth synagogue is important for us to learn from, right? Because it shows us that Jesus is a person, as Isaiah said, who is acquainted with grief and sorrow, someone who has experienced rejection. And this should hopefully be a comfort for all of us that if we experience, not if, when we experience rejection in this life, we follow a Lord who has experienced rejection himself. Not as a result of his sin, not as a result of his misgivings or his faults, but as a result of other people's rejecting of him. And so when we go to him in prayer and seeking comfort and consolation for our own experiences of rejection, we find someone who has been there as well. In fact, Jesus would tell his disciples, if they reject me, they will reject you as well. The will of God doesn't spare us from rejection on the human level. In fact, sometimes it requires it but it also results in good. As the psalmist said, which is quoted by 1 Peter and elsewhere, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In fact, it would become the rejection of Jesus that would ultimately lead to the pathway for eternal life for all who would believe in him. Now, that doesn't mean your rejection on eHarmony is going to result in the salvation of humankind, right? but that there is good that comes from rejection even in this life. Now, being accepted by God ultimately makes rejection tolerable. The reason Jesus is able to experience and endure such profound, unjust rejection is because the voice of the Father had proclaimed to him that he is his beloved son, and with him he is well pleased. Throughout Jesus' life, he would be pushed back and forth by crowds who would celebrate him and crowds who would reject him. And yet Jesus would be able to walk in a straight path as these two forces would push on him from either side. Why is that? Because what mattered most to him was the Father's assessment of him, that the Father loved him and cared about him. You and I will be able to experience rejection and celebration on a much more even keel when the voice that matters most to us is the voice of our Father and the longing that one day we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Why does Jesus walk away unharmed at the end of this scene? Because it's a preview of what's to come. Because at the end of Jesus' life, 
there would be another crowd that would push him away, angry at what he had claimed, angry at what he had said, and angry at who he had blessed. And they would well up and push him out of the city as well. This time not out of the city of Nazareth, but out of the city of Jerusalem. They would push him up onto a hill as well. So this time he would not walk away unharmed. This time he would be nailed to the cross for our sin. Because of their sinful hearts, hearts just like our hearts, naturally, they would disdain the greatest offer people had ever heard. But unlike the Nazareth crowd, this crowd would be murderous and it would come to fruition as they would kill Jesus. And while on the cross, people would taunt Jesus. They would say, he's claimed to bring liberty to others. Let him save himself. But Jesus knew that the way that he could never do this and ultimately bring freedom that we need the most. So the reason Jesus walks away unharmed at Nazareth is so that he could walk away harmed in Jerusalem. He walks away free in Nazareth so that he could go to the cross for our sins in Jerusalem. And ultimately, on the third day, Jesus would walk away. But he would walk out of the tomb as someone who has been killed but not dead, who is harmed but not crushed, bruised for our sin and iniquity. And the question of Jesus' life from the very beginning to the end is the same one the Nazareth congregation was faced with. Will you accept him or reject him? Will you follow him or will you push him away? Jesus' offer is there in front of us as it was in front of Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him to proclaim freedom for all of us. Will we accept it or will we reject it? A couple questions for you to pray about and think about this week. As you think about the offers of freedom and grace and redemption that Jesus offers, when have you seen that in your life? Maybe in the last week or the last year? Where have you noticed freedom? And then as you think about that in your life and you think about it in the lives of others, where have you been prone to resentment or comparison? Or where have you had a hard time with God working in other people's lives in ways that you think he should be working in yours? And then if you want to just sort of a, a time of prayer, a time of sort of imagining with God, imagine yourself in that Nazareth synagogue and how would you have reacted that day? Would you have waited on every word, as Travis said, or would you have responded with anger? The idea that the Messiah has come not for you, who thinks you deserve it, but for people far away, does that provoke anger in you? Or do you see yourself as one who doesn't deserve it either? Let's close our time in prayer. Jesus, thank you for bringing the good news of liberty and freedom in in the first generation and in ours. God, help us to delight in that gift more this week, not only for how it benefits us, but for those who are far away and far different than us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we close the service, um...